This is U.S. Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSE, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSE Stories. Today I'm joined by Ben Glick, who is our first undergraduate student to be featured on the podcast and is oppressively already involved in several open source communities. Ben, could you tell us about what you're studying, why you chose to study it, and what are some of your other academic interests? Sure. So I'm studying physics and computer science. I'm doing a dual major at Lewis and Clark College, which is a liberal arts college in Portland, Oregon. I was always interested in physics, starting in about middle school. I was enchanted by the way that we try and use math to describe the natural world. And I got interested in physics and computer science, both to varying degrees during high school. I got involved with my first sort of research computing project when I did a summer internship at the University of Chicago, working with a group that designed climate models with the eventual goal of helping to make public policy decisions based in sort of actual climate science. And I enjoyed that experience so much that when I started looking for colleges, I was looking for places that had strong physics and computer science programs. When I got to college, I study physics and computer science. I'm doing a dual major. While I was there, I got involved with a research project on campus, studying various things using computational tools. That was also at the same time that the school decided that we needed to get our first high performance computing system. So I got to be involved with setting all of that up and my time spending multiple summers working at University of Chicago in the Computation Institute sort of founded my interest in high performance computing and shifted my focus from pure physics to the ways that we use computers to solve scientific problems. Not a lot of people have been able to say that they've helped set up a high-performance computer. Can you tell us a little bit about the steps, what that was like, how long it took? Sure. So there are really two answers to this question. The first one has to do with the entire administrative process, and the second one has to do with just the actual setup process. I'm going to choose to tell the story of the setup process because I wasn't really involved with the things like funding requests and waiting for that to go through the bureaucracy. And also, frankly, that was not a very interesting process, although it was very important. Basically, what happened was the school told us we had sort of X amount of money. We then went to a couple of people who we knew in the high performance community and asked them for their advice on how to most effectively use it to design a system. In the end, we used a design which was modified from Chris Sullivan, who is the assistant director for biocomputing at Oregon State University. We took his system and sort of modified his design to better fit our needs. And we contacted a vendor and ordered the hardware. It showed up about a month and a half later in wooden crates, which we had to open. We had Chris come down and help us set up all the each individual node. We mounted them into a rack, which was free from our IT department. We spent basically a day and a half setting up. And then between hardware installation, which took about a morning, software installation, which took the rest of that day and the beginning of the next day to just get the operating systems and all the networking stuff together. And then the next, I don't know, 
week or so, we were installing programs and starting to meet with people who would eventually be researchers on our system. We then spent quite a while sitting down and talking with each prospective research group and figuring out exactly what level of support they would need, what sort of software they would be interested in using and how we could best make it available to them. So that was sort of the initial level of setup. And since then, we've continued to sort of modify things as needed. We added a GPU node at one point about six months ago. And so that was, we took the cluster down for about a day to add our GPUs. And that was the sort of the same process as before, installing the operating system on the GPU node, plugging it in, not in that order. But I would say the actual hardware setup took about a day to a day and a half each time. And then the software setup has been more of an ongoing process because we've developed some custom software for it since we actually set up. I would guess, I might be wrong, that some open source software communities that you contribute to might be relevant to that cluster. Maybe you can tell us about some of the open source communities that you are involved in. Absolutely. So the main open source community I'm involved in is the Parcel Project, which is a project hosted by the University of Chicago and Argonne National Lab. They developed Parcel, which is a workflow management system designed to help researchers work in parallel using only Python. So the idea is you write Python code, you put decorators over your functions to express your parallelism, and then Parcel helps you automatically run your work anywhere you want from your laptop to the biggest supercomputers in the world. And it can even do things like multi-site. So I got involved with the Parcel project first in the end of high school, beginning of college, where when it was a very small project, I think there were about three developers. I thought it was such a cool idea. The Parcel engineers were so wonderful to me and let me help out, even though I would say I was negatively helpful at first. So I've ended up just being a member of that community for the last few years. And so Parcel is actually at the heart of almost all of the software that I talked about that we've developed for our cluster. The way that we've been able to allow researchers to essentially have a self-service model for the most part on our cluster is by making heavy use of Parcel as an execution endpoint. So we've done things like set up a system so that users can type code into Jupyter Notebooks and have it automatically run through the scheduling system and have it do some attempts at rudimentary parallelization automatically using Parcel as an execution engine. We also have a REST API, which allows you to run many similar jobs automatically. And that also utilizes Parcel features. So that's been the big open source community that I have benefited from. And I've also contributed several smaller projects to the Parcel team and, and sort of attempted to give back in terms of uh, making features that more people can use. What kind of feedback do you get from researchers about how the cluster existing period or having Parcel has positively impacted their lives? The reason we actually bought the cluster was the straw that broke the camel's back was a student who was trying to do a thesis in genomics and she was using Amazon Web Services and her processing ended up taking a lot longer than she wanted, using a lot more compute resources than she initially thought it would. And she ended up having about a four-figure Amazon Web Services bill, which was not something the school could afford. So after that, luckily, Amazon was able to give us some retroactive uh, educational grants. And the school decided that it would be cheaper to just do it with a cluster on campus. And the benefit of that is that we have this cluster on campus now 24-7. 
And so other researchers who aren't just the person who bought the Amazon instance can use it. So we've sort of developed a community around this. This is a school of 2,500 students, so it's very small. But we have about 12 or 13 research groups who regularly use our cluster, ranging from climate modelers to physicists doing quantum field theory to biologists doing genomics. We've basically been able to give these people a home on campus to do computational research. And the use of Parcel has been really important because most of our researchers, except for the computer scientists, are novices with HPC, and most of them are novices with programming in general. So being able to provide them a pure Python way to interact with it and still get reasonable parallel speed up has been sort of the killer app that gets people to use our cluster. That's really impressive, especially since you've been such a big part of the project. How did you discover USRSC and how has it sort of impacted your life or has it impacted your life? What would be the incentive of an undergraduate student to sort of get interested in the community in the first place? I think I saw a tweet from Dan Katz. I had met Dan Katz in my exploits with University of Chicago. He's involved with the Parcel Project as well. So I think I saw a tweet and said, wow, this looks really cool. And then went to the website and said, yeah, this is really cool. And then joined the Slack. How have I benefited from RSE? I certainly already have. I At SC19, I unfortunately couldn't go to the RSE meetup, but I really did want to. But I did find time to sit down with Ian Cosden from Princeton, who was, I think, your first interviewee. And he was really interesting and sort of was able to tell me about his path and about how he found RSE. I've found that my school has been able to benefit from the RSE community in that we can borrow some sort of things that other schools are doing that I wouldn't have known about without USRSE. And I personally have been able to see sort of the state of the practice. And I think as a person who I think would like to be an RSE at some point in the future, it's a job that sort of speaks to me. It's really useful to be able to engage with that community and, and be a member of that community before the quote unquote rest of my life has started. <laughs> That's funny, the, the rest of your life. I'm like in my 30s and I still feel the same as when yeah. I was in college too. And I'm like, am I, am I a grown up yet? At the school, I'm constantly telling my boss, oh, you know, students aren't real people. I'll walk in when he's having a meeting and I'll come back and after the meeting's over and I'll say, was that a student or a real person? Yeah, I really <laughs> think students are people. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Let's zoom forward 10 years to when maybe you are, you will be a real person. <laughs> What changes would you like to see with respect to the research software engineering community? I think the biggest problem with research software engineering at the moment is that it's not valued. And I know that sounds sort of biased when it's coming from a person who wants to be a part of this community or who is a part of this community. But I think that it's a real problem that most RSEs either don't get to be called RSEs or don't get to be funded permanently. I think basically every school that's engaged in computational research should have an actual division of research software engineers that are around to make sure that the research software that is being produced is of high quality. And that happens to a degree now, but most of those research software engineers are either graduate students who are sort of forced into the role or are people who are on contracts or are grant funded. So I think that basically the what I'd like to see different 10 years from now is just more of a 
respect for a research and software engineer as an important part of the process of computational research. Those are some very wise words and you articulated that really well. I find it so ironic that the fundamental like cornerstone of research, which is also the essential component for like a university's reputation is software. But, you know, you look around and you're right, it's graduate students that like, that's what I did as a graduate student. I was writing software because I said, why are we in Silicon Valley and there aren't good tools to do this? There's of course nothing wrong with graduate students writing research software. But I think that the average non-computer science graduate student, A, isn't super interested in writing the research software as being as their main job. They most, I would say, I don't want to generalize, but most of them want to study the science that they're doing a degree in. But also they don't necessarily have the experience necessary to make their research software in a way that it can be readable, maintainable, reliable, you know, shareable. And I think it's really important to have someone whose job is software and then making sure it's good software on every project. So you've probably given a little bit. What year are you in college? I'm a senior. Ah, so you've definitely, I know you've given some thought about sort of next steps. Do you have ideas that you could share? I had sort of a mid-college crisis when I want, was deciding whether I wanted to go to grad school straight away or whether I wanted to go to the industry or what I wanted to do. And I'm not totally over that. So I, I will be looking for kind of both. But I think that I've mostly decided I want to spend a couple years away from school before I go back to school, even though I definitely 100% want to go get a PhD in computer science eventually. I really want to spend the next couple years engaging uh, distributed systems at a high level and low level ha can be used in many different ways. And I want to say low level as in close to the way they work, not low level as in poorly. But I want to engage with distributed systems and high performance computing systems at a low level. So I'm basically looking for places I can do that while also continuing to engage in open source and if possible, scientific research. I would highly advocate for that too. I finished college and I knew that I liked to learn things, but I didn't even know what specifically I wanted to sort of apply that to. It felt like I wanted to kind of dig my hands into something first and be absolutely sure that I wanted to commit then like five years or whatever to graduate school. Mm -hmm. See, it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if I could do seven more, six to seven more years of school without taking a little break first. That's the yeah. Thing. I think what happened for me is I went in, I took a break for a couple of years and I hit this point where I knew that I was missing sort of tools in my tool belt to mm -hmm. do things or to answer questions that I really wanted to do. And I sort of just knew when it was the right time. So I suspect that'll happen mm -hmm. for you too, but I think it's really good that you're following your gut. I don't think that can really lead you wrong. Let's pretend that you have just invented a time traveling machine and you're going back in time and you run into yourself when you were a freshman, hmm. what advice would you give to yourself? Facetiously, I would say work harder at math. Math doesn't come naturally to me, but it's really important for both computer science and physics, as we all know. So I would say work harder in your multivariate calculus, differential equations courses, because that knowledge will serve you better and you're gonna have to learn it sooner or later. And learning it in the classroom is easier. More broadly, I would say, don't be so narrow. 
try, just try things. If you know you're interested in using computers to solve scientific problems, don't limit yourself. Go seek out biologists, chemists, physicists, and see what kinds of problems they're dealing with and how they're using computers to solve them and try and engage with all of them instead of just limiting it to what you think you're interested in. Yeah, that's, that's definitely really good advice. I think a lot of students go in and they're like, I'm, I'm going to be pre-med or I'm definitely going to be in CS so I can be a software engineer. And they limit their, they make a very narrow tunneled scope of their vision and they, they miss things that could be interesting. When I was in high school, I only wanted to be an aerospace engineer. I knew I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. And now I really don't want to be an aerospace engineer. <laughs> I don't even think I knew what that was in high school properly. Was it just sort of a, a fantasy that you kind of glamorized the role? And then when you realized what it was, you weren't interested or was it something else? I think when I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a car designer and I wanted to design cars that were race cars. And then I wanted to design planes and I was always into building things. And then in high school, I had decided I'm going to be the person that finds a way to do fossil fuel free jet engine propulsion. It's going to be me for sure. And so I decided that to do that, I had to go be an aerospace engineer. And then I sort of had an epiphany that that was probably not going to be any single person who solved that problem, let alone me. And also there's many ways to do that and not be an aerospace engineer. So I think it was just, I got a hyper-specific notion about what I could do and what I was interested in that turned out to be completely untrue. Uh, That's yeah, so totally okay. I, yeah, <laughs> basically I was dumb in high school, but so are all of us. So are we all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're coming up on time. I want to ask you okay. a few more sort of fun questions. I'm really interested in this. I read that some of your interests are Samoan fire knife dancing and judo. Please yes. tell me about that. Okay, so I started doing judo as a six-year-old. My friend left my school and we wanted to hang out and he, I knew he had just started doing judo. So I was like, I asked my parents if I could go to judo with him and they said yes. And so I did, and I loved it. The judo coach turned out to be one of my favorite people in the world, and he still is. And as I grew up and progressed through the ranks, he became one of my closest friends. And I started to teach with him as well during about middle school and high school. So I actually did my bar mitzvah mitzvah project on teaching judo to kids with disabilities. So that was when I was 12. And after that, I just liked it so much that I didn't stop. So I sort of transitioned from being primarily a national level judo fighter. Around age 15, I stopped doing competitive fighting and I started doing more coaching and teaching. So my Saturdays in high school would be in the morning. I, had, I taught a class to students with intellectual disabilities in the morning. Then I, we drove across the city and we did a class for people with visual impairment and physical impairment. Then we drove across the city again and we had our three-hour high-level workout for the national competitor members of our team. And then we had one last class for kids with physical disabilities. And so that was all day, every Saturday throughout high school. And so I think I learned a lot about judo, obviously, but also what it is to be involved in athletics and how martial arts relate to, like people say judo is not a martial art, it's a way of life. And I think I learned a lot about what that actually means through those experiences. And I made a lot of really, really great friends. And then Samoan Fire Knife, how familiar are you with Samoan Fire Knife? Not a, okay. nothing. So, so I came to college and a friend said, you should come with me to Fire Arts Club practice. 
And I said, what's that? And they said, just come over. It'll be fun. And I showed up and what it is, is it's all sorts of people with fire staves and fire swords and fire poi, spinning them around in the air and making cool performance art by spinning fire around in the air. And I started to join in and do Samoan Fire Knife, which is basically imagine a three foot long pole with a really big knife blade on one end and a ball of Kevlar wick on the other end. There's actually Kevlar on the blade as well. What you do is you dip the Kevlar in fuel, you light it on fire, and you spin it around and throw it in the air and things like that. It originated in American Samoa by a Samoan person who came to San Francisco in the 1940s. He mixed traditional Samoan knife dancing with fire after he saw a circus performer juggling fire clubs. I know it's not a huge community, but there's a World Fire Knife Championship every year in Hawaii, and so it's, it's just a cool thing that I like to do in my free time. Holy cow, how's that for like <laughs> interdisciplinary activities? It, it makes anything that is quote dangerous in you know software engineering like so trivial because if, if you're practicing Samoan fire knife dancing, you could potentially like stab someone or burn them yeah. horrifically. Uh, well, we do our best to be safe. I think I could do more monetary damage by breaking a supercomputer than, than by breaking a Samoan fire knife. Is there anything that the USRC can do differently that would make your life better? One thing that is, it seems like is going to happen, but Ian mentioned this, I think more in-person meetup type stuff would be really great where I could meet people and hear firsthand what people are doing at their institutions. And Yeah, I, I totally expensive. agree. And <laughs> I would say we need t-shirts, we need right. events, that sort of thing. And I agree. I, I think those things are coming. Mm -hmm. So Ben, it has been really fun talking with you today. I hope that you keep everyone updated about what you're going to do after you graduate and look forward to talking to you more. Absolutely. Thank you very much. It was really nice to meet you.